Just a few facts about the book of Jonah. Can't, I'm afraid, deal with it as we have dealt with it in a more exhaustive way. But just a, a few facts. I think you will know that it is the fifth book of the Minor Prophets. And it is a very remarkable little book in every way. One of the most remarkable things about it is that it only contains one sentence of prophecy, or more correctly, a prophetic discourse. And yet it, is, it ranks very highly in the prophetical books. It is indeed as prophetic as the book of Isaiah. It is quoted many times, quite a number of times anyway, comparatively speaking, with other prophets, in the New Testament. It seemingly contains no actual specific message for God's people. And in that case, it is unique. For all the other prophets uh, have a message supremely for God's people. One of the uh, exceptions, of course, is Obadiah. But even Obadiah, in his ministry to Edom, had in fact a message, ba a basic message, for God's people. But superficially, the book of Jonah has no message for God's people at all. It is the one book in the Old Testament wholly given to a ministry to the Gentiles. And that is all the more remarkable, for I think you all know that as the history of God's people progressed, Jewish exclusivism became more and more an established and deeply rooted thing. So it is all the more remarkable that we have this little book of Jonah in the canon of Scripture at all. For here his whole ministry is bound up with Assyria and with the capital of Assyria, the greatest metropolis of the world in um, uh, Jonah's day. His whole ministry, as far as this little book is concerned, is to do with the Gentiles. And, uh, we might say, with a very ferocious and cruel and proud, arrogant section of the Gentiles. Uh, in 2 Kings, I think, chapter 14 and round about verse 25, you'll find a, a reference to the ministry of Jonah to God's people. Now that makes it all the more remarkable. For that is the only reference we have to the fact that Jonah did, in fact, have a ministry to God's own people. For many, many years, in, it was true that Jonah ministered uh, in the northern kingdom of Israel. That was his sphere of service. God had placed him there, and he was, as far as we can make out, exceedingly faithful. For, you see, before him there was Elijah, who was succeeded by Elisha, and from what we can gather, Jonah succeeded Elisha. He was the successor in a very great and uh, important ministry to God's people. 
It is therefore all the more remarkable that the scripture does not preserve for us any of Jonah's ministry to God's earth. Instead, it gives us this little book of Jonah and uh, it's all to do with the despised Gentiles, the uncircumcised people. So there's just a little bit of a background to this book. But when you begin to look into it, it in fact has one of the greatest messages of all the prophetical books of God's own. This is so often the case in Scripture, that what superficially uh, does not seem to be there at all, when you later come to look at it, uh, has the greatest amount to say on a given subject. Here it is so. This little book of Jonah is a, trem a tremendous necessity if we are to understand God's heart. If we are to enter into fellowship with God in a practical, real, tangible way, we've got to understand the message of the book of Jonah. If we uh, bypass it, if we overlook it, then we shall never be able to come into a real and um, intimate, um, practical fellowship with God. I believe that's very, very important. You see, in this little book, we have our attention focused upon a very important point the vocation of God's people on this earth. The vocation of God's people on this earth. Not their vocation in the heavens, but their vocation on this earth. What is their vocation? What is their calling? What is their function? What is the position that should be theirs? And why? That's what this little book of Jonah focuses our attention upon. Um, in, as I've said, it is unique and singular in many, many ways. Its whole outlook of compassionate uh, sympathy and understanding of the uh, Gentiles is even uh, or quite different and contrary to the spirit of the Jewish people in the days of Christ even. Uh, this little book, I would like to say here and now, has been for centuries a hotbed for controversy whilst God's people have quietly overlooked its message. It's the most amazing thing. On the one side you've got it like a shuttlecock just hit backwards and forwards by, in a great theological dispute as to whether Jonah, in fact, ever existed at all, whether he was swallowed by a great fish, whether, in fact, Nineveh at one time ever existed, whether a lot of other things happened. So there's been all this controversy based on so-called linguistic evidence, but, in fact, based essentially upon the problem of the miraculous element in this little book. That's one side of the story. But the other side is this, that by and large, except for Sunday schools, 
and for a rather thrilling gospel message now and again to different people. The message of the book of Jonah has always been overlooked. As Isaiah, as Isaiah was told, in seeing they do not see, in hearing they do not hear. Now, our hearts are heavy uh, within them. It was so under the old covenant. This little book, you would have thought, would have had a dynamic impact upon God's own under the, under the old covenant. In fact, it was disregarded. In the days of our Lord Jesus, it was again a disregarded book. It had it come into the canon of Scripture. It was recognized as having a tremendous message, and yet its message was quietly... Uh, overlooked, and uh, the Jew could refer to the uh, Gentile as a dog, uh, and still read the book of Jonah. And then down through the centuries of time, you still have this message of the book of Jonah so often disregarded by God's people under the new covenant. We uh, so often are found disregarding this remarkable so I want you to see that it focuses our attention upon the vocation, the calling of God's people on this earth. And what it has to say about the calling of God's people under the old covenant is something as applicable to God's people under the new covenant. I love the book of Jonah because it, is, it, it expresses the reaction of God against all that misrepresents him. We, children of God, have a terrible capacity for misrepresenting the Lord. Our very calling was to represent the Lord, not just individually, but corporately, to represent Christ in the earth, to represent Christ, if you like, amongst the nations. That was our calling. But oh, wherever you go, what is the thing you find amongst unsaved people? The thing that stumbled them, the thing that stopped them, the thing that hinders them, is what they see amongst us who are Christians. They have had this contact with a Christian in their office, or that contact with a Christian in their home, or they've had this dealings with this church, or that church, or the other. And because of this, there is a deep-seated uh, aversion for Christian things. The thing that's supposed to represent God amongst the nations is in fact a misrepresentation of God. We must apply that to ourselves. Personally, we, individually, who should represent the Lord so often, are misrepresenting the Lord. Now this is the problem that the little book of Jonah tackles. This is the very thing that this, this little book gets to grips with and drags out into the open, and thrashes out uh, before our eyes. This whole question of unconscious, mark the word, unconscious misrepresentation of the Lord. Poor Jonah. If we had said to him, Jonah, you're misrepresenting the Lord, I'm sure he would have been so upset, probably couldn't have spoken for a week or two. He would have said to us, misrepresenting the Lord, I've given up everything. I've given up everything. And when you look into Jonah's character, I'm afraid Jonah's often misrepresented, but when you look in, as we did, into the character of Jonah, we find him a most likable and remarkable man. Uh, very few of us 
when we were in a, a, a situation and we knew we were the cause of it, would say to the people, get rid of us. We're the cause of this. No, that's not like most of us. We would all keep quiet and let the storm go on. Just say, oh Lord, don't let them find out I'm the root of this, of this trouble, of, uh, of all of this trial that's come upon them all. But you see, Jonah comes out in his real colors as a, as a man of real spiritual character that he is able to say, you throw me overboard, I'm the cause of all this. As soon as you throw me overboard, the thing will calm down. And there are many other things that you can see in the character of Jonah. His faithfulness, his loyalty, his perseverance, his frankness, his sincerity, his candor. All these things, his genuineness. All these things go down well uh, for the, on the credit side of the character of the prophet Jonah. So we must be very careful of misrepresenting Jonah. But you see, this book is a cry. It's a great protest of God. Not against the unsaved. Not against those wicked workers of iniquity. No, this is a cry of protest against the very servants of the Lord. This is a remarkable book because it contains the great protest, the divine protest against us who should be representing the Lord, especially the more responsible ones. This book has a message for us who are, as it were, bearing on our shoulders the burden of the things of the Lord. It's a tremendous message, and as I say, it's a message which so often is disregarded. Well, that's all we will say in a general way about this, of the background, the prophet. It focuses our attention upon the calling of God's people on earth, their function uh, uh, in this world. And it's a great cry against that unconscious misrepresentation uh, that is found amongst us who should be representing the Lord. Now, I want really to draw from this book of Jonah three lessons. None of them are new, but the fact that we are drawing them out and pinpointing them, I hope, uh, will serve to clarify what was said some months ago about the uh, key to this book and its outline. On the board, you have the basic framework of this little book. That you can refer to, if you haven't got a copy, you can take it, and you can refer all that I have to say this evening back into that uh, as you read. You don't, well, it's not a hard book to study. There's only four chapters, and all four chapters are very small chapters, so it's not a hard book to study. Now, what is the first lesson that we must learn from the book of Jonah. It is the Lord's conception of the function of his people in this world. The Lord's conception of the function of his people in this world. What does the Lord see as our function? Why were you and I saved? If we went back to Jonah's day, we would say to Jonah, 
Why are you an Israelite? Why in the sovereignty and uh, for ordination of God were you, Jonah, chosen to be an Israelite? How comes that you were born of God's chosen people? We might ask all the rest. How come that you were born within the covenant? Not outside the covenant, but within the covenant. Why? We can ask ourselves the same question. Why has God saved us? What is the meaning of our salvation? Oh, we know, we know, Jonah might say, well, it's to get us to heaven. An unsatisfactory answer, I might say. But he might well say, to get us to heaven. And many Christians seem to think that that's all gospel's for, to get us to heaven. It's not so. There's much more than getting us to heaven. Much, much, much more uh, than just getting us into what we call heaven uh, to do with the gospel. What is the conception of the Lord in what we call the church? What is his conception for it on the earth, not in the heavens? We've got a lot of ministry about what it's going to be one day and what it is up there in, in the heavens spiritually. But we want to know what is the Lord's conception of it down here on earth, an intangible, expressed, practical, if you like, almost earthly way. What is his conception? Well, this book teaches us one thing. It is the means of bringing God to the world and the world to God. God's whole conception in a chosen nation under the old covenant was one thing only, that they might be a vessel which would bring him to the other nations and would bring the other nations to him. In other words, God's whole, whole plan in choosing one nation above all the other nations of the earth was that they might become a people in whom he actually and practically dwelt. And whereas he changed them and transformed them and conformed them to his image, so as they became a light, they might lighten the other Gentiles. They might carry God's salvation to the ends of the earth. That's why God refers to Israel as my firstborn. That implies others to come. This is what the Lord Jesus meant later when he interpreted their history about my sheep. Then he said, other sheep have I which I must bring. This was the fact that was overlooked by God's people in the, under the Old Covenant. It is this that the book of Jonah gets to the root of. If it had been understood, there would have been no need for many of the words of our Lord Jesus concerning the Gentile. You see, God's whole conception was take a nation and do in that nation singular, unique, if you like, supernatural things. Give them a supernatural history. Give them, if you like, a miraculous history. Make them an enigma in the eyes of the whole world. Let the world see that something is contained in this nation which no other nation has. Something is beyond the human ken about this nation. There is a strange uh, quality that gets them through everything, that delivers them in the most impossible situations. Do all that, 
with one great objective, that the nations might come into a knowledge of God. Now, you see, the prophets take this up. If you read Isaiah, you read Jeremiah, you read Ezekiel, you read other prophets, if you are doing that, one of the notes you must uh, look for and underline is this question of the nations. The prophets saw this. This was one of their great notes, one of their great themes, that one day when God has got things as he wants them in Zion, all the nations will flow to Zion. They will come, they will bring all their wealth, the kings will come and bow down and their queens, and they will become servants of the Lord. And how will they become so? By the virtue of the Lord dwelling in Israel. Do you understand? This was God's great conception that his people should be the means by which he reaches the world and the world reaches him. If you like the meeting place between God and humanity, God chose a nation that they might become the meeting place, his meeting place, with the rest of the nations of the world. Now, whatever you might feel about that, it is absolutely true of the church. That is written into the very spiritual, organic constitution of the church. It, the, 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 the church has no meaning unless you see it as that. The church is the means by which God reaches out to the world, the whole world. And the world can reach out to God. It is a place where the world can hear God and see God and handle God. You know, in the first letter of John and the first chapter and the first verse, you have this, that which we heard and our eyes have seen and our hands have handled, make we known unto you. That was their, uh, the early message. We've seen, we've heard, we've handled. And in a spiritual way, this is what the church should be. Christ was this. Christ was the very presence of God in a visible, tangible, practical form on earth. The meeting place of God with humanity and humanity with God. The Lord Jesus sums up the whole history of God's people into himself. He becomes the embodiment of all God wanted in the nation. In one individual, God gets all that he wanted in a nation. The Lord Jesus is the son of the Jewish people. He is their great summit. You understand? Where they failed, he succeeded. I wonder if, that's, if I'm making that clear to you. But you see, the New Testament represents the church as being organically linked to Christ. He is the head, we are the body. You cannot make a division. You cannot divorce the two into two things. They are one thing. Christ is head. We are the body. And therefore, you see, the church is the place where men should hear God. They should hear God. It doesn't just mean when we sit like this, but wherever we are, in our conversation, in our laughter, in our sorrows, in our very being, they should be able to detect God. They should be able to see God. Somehow we're, we're normal flesh and blood. But beyond the normal flesh and blood, there's something which they cannot explain. It's God. They should be able to handle God. Do you understand? This is God's conception in the church. The whole thought behind it is that, there should be, that the church should be a place 
where God can come out in tangible, expressible, practical form, and where the world can touch God in a practical, tangible, expressible form. That's what the Apostle Paul meant when he said, ye are living epistles, open and read of all men. Someone has said, the only Bible many people see is you. I never read any other Bible. You are the Bible as far as they're concerned. What they see in your life each day is really what they're reading of God. So, you see, it all comes down to this term body. In the Old Testament, it was, of course, a nation, a brotherhood. Something which belonged in, in an integral way, every part of it, to each other. Now, in the New Testament, it's no longer a nation in that way. We are a nation, but we are a different kind of nation. And the word that is most commonly used of us is this little term, the church, which is his body. And uh, with the fear, of course, of the, the overuse of this term, I wonder sometimes whether, because of its use, <coughs> we never get the real meaning of it. What does this term body mean? It's an intimate, organic term, isn't it? If we are a body, we are linked to something. A body is nothing unless it's linked. It's linked to the head. It finds its life, its source of power, its direction, as it were, in the head. Without the head, it's nothing. It must have the head. It belongs to the head. Therefore, for the Lord to call us his body is, uh, as it were, an intensely intimate term for us. Um, an organic term. I can't express it. I wish I could. Um, something as if he's saying to you, you belong to me. You are me. You understand? If I refer to this as my body, well, I'm not speaking of something sitting over there. I'm referring to this. It belongs to me. I say, my body. I've got an ache in my body. I mean this thing here. Something that's essentially linked to my head. It belongs to me. I look at my hands. I say, now, they're parts of me. That is part of me. You see? Part of me. My body. So, you see, in this term, the body, there's something that we've got to recognize. You cannot divorce the body from the personality. If I can get rid of my personality, my body is nothing, is it? Some people believe in the suppression of personality, and they become soulless individuals. Very dull, very uninteresting people indeed. Do you understand what I mean? But when you, have, you meet a body, what do you meet? You don't meet a body. No one's interested in bodies. I should be very interested if anyone's interested in bodies as bodies. People are interested in what's in the body. That's the thing that in the end gets there. Your body is only a means by which you're conveyed to them. If you were all spirit or soul, we couldn't see you. But you have a body. And your body is the tangible, expressible, practical part of you. What your personality thinks and feels and acts and moves comes out in your body. Do you understand? And sometimes some of us, blessed with ugliness, can yet become uh, desirable and attractive to other people because within there is something that essentially is attractive. The personality. Do you understand what I'm getting at? Or perhaps you don't. But anyway, the whole point is that the body is a term which has no meaning, as far as the Lord is concerned, unless it is linked with himself. Why did he call the church his body? Because the, the, we are, as it were, the tangible, expressible, practical form 
by which he comes to man, by which he makes himself known, by which he makes himself heard and seen and handled. Do you understand? He is the personality. We are the body. I cannot explain it. It would take uh, two or three evenings to even explain that and, and guard the dangers in what I'm saying and the excessive things that people may take what they're saying to. But may I put it another way altogether? God wants to breathe. He wants to move. He wants to act. He wants to laugh. He wants to cry. And he wants a means of doing it. And the church is the way in which the invisible, almighty, omnipotent God makes himself known in a world. God in himself would seem to most of us so austere, so far away, so distant. But God has this amazing means by which he wants to reach the world. I hope you understand what I mean. He wants to express himself in terms that can be understood. So consequently, you will get sometimes in the scripture a song of unbelievable triumph. Well, you say, that's God. That's God. That's God in a man. But just wait, that's it. It's God expressing himself in a man. That person has become the vehicle by which God has expressed his joy. But then later on, you get another psalm which is right down in the depths, full of sorrow, full of yearning, full of longing. And you see, it's the same. God is speaking through that. But there's a human vehicle, a human vessel, by which it is coming. Do you understand? In other words, you are touching God, but you're touching God in a man. So when David in the 22nd psalm says, My God, my God, why is Thou forsaken me. You're touching the very heart of God. But in fact, you're touching the heart of God through David. It was David, King David, who said those words. It was out of his experience that those words were wrong. But you aren't touching God. In fact, you're touching Calvary. You're touching the very, the very point of all history. And yet, you see, you have this amazing link of God and man. And so, you see... God has, if I may underline it, the most unbelievable love and compassion for this world. Oh, if only we could see it, if only we could believe it, that God has such an unbelievable love and compassion for this world. He has given the world up, that is true. He has allowed the world to make all its hideous instruments for evil. He's allowing the whole thing to career into its last great terrible throes. But you see, it doesn't mean that God doesn't love. It is the only way that God can bring men and women to their senses is by giving them plenty of rope. That's the only way. Oh, you may, you may not agree with that. But still, it's a fact. God has given man up to their own devices. That by their devices, they may become so miserable that they turn back to him. It is the only way that man can be educated, instructed, and finally saved is by being turned back to God by the very things that have come through his own perverted nature. There is so much that's noble, there is so much that's good about man, but there is also that which is incredibly evil and so deeply seated in our very being and nature. The only way we can learn it, we don't want to accept it, is a fact. 
The only way we can learn it is by being left to our own miserable ways. Finally, in the end, we might learn the lesson and turn to God. God has always sought to reach this world. You will not find a single phase of the history of God's people when God has not been trying somehow or other to reach out and, and touch the world. Right back in the Old Testament, you've got him coming, to, seeking to reach the world through men, Enoch, and Noah, and later Abraham. And then you have this remarkable fact that you have in those days men who are not, as we say, Hebrews. You have Jethro, you have Lemuel, you have Job, one of the greatest, most classic examples. You have others who don't belong to the covenant but who nevertheless found the salvation of God. Right back in the beginning, it was always God was always trying to seek men. He doesn't just seek particular kind of people, or even his own chosen people. He all the time is out to reach all, to try and somehow bring all within his salvation, if it is possible. Christ is the greatest example of this, of course, of God seeking to reach out to man. Christ is the meaning of it all, isn't it? The, the great intervention of God in world history to reach man. And now, of course, it's the church. And this whole battle goes on. It's as if some arch-adversary of God knows full well that if ever God's people get into their proper position and start to function, the whole thing will break up. The whole thing will break up. It will be true that the nations will flow. Something will start to happen. And so, if you look back, you'll find that. If I may use a term, going back to this question of the body, the body contains the heart. And if some of you forget everything else I say, just remember this, that as the body of the Lord Jesus, we contain the heart. He wants the heart there. And that's the thing that's missing. It's the heart the heart is in the body. He wants his heart to beat within the church so that somehow or other there's a, a throb within the church, a concern, a sympathy, a love, a keeping, as it were, in step with the mind and the idea and the attitude and the character of the Lord. This is the very thing you see in Jonah's day, which you, say, you see so clearly in him. The very thing that he has selected to teach us. It's happened again and again in church history. It's happening today again. You have on the one side God's people. You have on the other side God. And the people who should contain God's heart, as it were, be the very expression of his compassion, his concern, his love, and his truth and firmness and righteousness. It's not there. Well, I wish we could, uh, we could really underline this, because it's in the book of Jonah. Here you've got the... Here you've got the book of Jonah. Now then, look at Jonah. Let's look at him. See whether this bears out what we have to say. Well, here is Jonah. Here is the servant of the Lord. Here is a prophet of the Lord. Jonah does not just merely represent the Lord in an individual way. He represents the outreach of God's nation to the unsaved. Do you understand? He was, when he came out, he was representing the people of God. He was representing the God who dwells at Jerusalem. And here he had come, out into the open, and was seeking to reach them. 
And uh, what do we find? Well, we find a very strange thing. What a strange thing it was when the Lord repented and said he would deliver Nineveh. And then you find the prophet of the Lord sitting down exceedingly angry, displeased beyond measure. And he's not conscious of it. He's not the least bit conscious that he's misrepresenting the Lord. But what a spectacle to us. You see, we all see it in a detached way. We would all judge him if he were here. We would say, oh, dear. I have to pray for Jonah. It's a dreadful thing. But do you know it's here amongst us? Those of us who have this spirit most within us are the least conscious of it. It's so everywhere. Wherever you have God's people, you see. Here is the spirit of the utter displeasure of Jonah. His exceeding anger. And then when you see him going off, as it were, stomping off out, up onto a little hill, and he sits there, and he's going to sit out there for 40 days and 40 nights. And why, you said to Jonah, why? Are you going to have a time of intercession? Are you Are going to pray? Or what are you going to do? No, no, no. I'm going to sit here to see whether the Lord will change his mind again. Maybe by sitting it out here and not talking to the Lord, he'll change his mind again and destroy Nineveh. Now, isn't it unbelievable that the one who's supposed, to who's supposed to represent the Lord is now misrepresenting him in this way? The very God with compassion who wants to reach out to the unsaved and save them and bring them into uh, an understanding of himself is being utterly misrepresented by his own chosen servant. His mouthpiece, if you like. You see? What an amazing thing it really is. And I think that's one of the most amazing verses in the book of Jonah is the little one that says, Because I knew, Lord, without slow to anger, plenteous in mercy, gracious, and so on. What an amazing thing for the prophet to say. I knew you were like that, Lord. He's not conscious of it, is he? So, you see, here within this book, you have our attention focus upon this question. Here is someone who is a servant of the law, who represents God's chosen people, and he is absolutely misrepresenting them. You see, we, his people, are God's sovereignly appointed method of bringing the world to himself and bringing himself to the world. God has no other method. Of course, there are times in church history and elsewhere when God has just broken in because the vessel had to be put on one side. God breaks in sovereignly by himself without human uh, vehicle. Nevertheless, God's sovereignly appointed and chosen method is his people. We are the means. We are the properly constituted vessel, if you like, vehicle for the expression of the law in the earth. He wants his church to be a living and moving animate thing. Not a dead, cold, morgue-like institution. That's the thing the church has become. Something static. Something cold. Something institutional. Something just merely organized on the one side. No, the Lord doesn't want that. He wants something which is a body. Something which is living and animate. Something through which he can express himself in human terms. 
Not where people are all the time looking up books and saying, now, what should we do about divorcees? Well, well, we'll do this, we'll do that. What should we do about this? What should we do about that? Long lists of regulations of who we shall accept into membership and who we won't. What we shall do about this situation and what we shall do about that. No, the Lord wants a body that's in living touch with him, with the, with the authoritative word open before it. That's all. The Holy Spirit in charge and an open book. That's all. The Bible. That's all. Animate, living, moving, feeling. That's what he wants. Something through which somehow or other he can just express himself to men and women in this world. If you get that, you've got the root of evangelism. Because evangelistic campaigns had their very real place in the life and service of God's people. But God, the root of evangelism lies in every single member of the body. God's whole thought in evangelism is that we should carry the Lord. In all our homes and offices and places, we should carry the Lord to the people. And we should bring the people to the Lord. We are the meeting place of God and humanity. Therefore, if you are just one Christian in a factory, you are virtually God's meeting place in that factory. The meeting place by which he meets the rest in that place and by which they should be able to reach God. Don't think of it as a place, as a room, as a meeting. Oh, what a mistake it all is. And all the time we think we've just got to get people to meetings or get them along to some little group or something. No, you are constituted by the Holy Spirit as a member of the body of Christ, as God's meeting place with humanity. And what the world finds in you is how it will judge God. You know that from the criticism you probably receive in your homes and offices. People turn around and say, oh, you're a Christian? And immediately you know, oh dear, because although we all resent it, there's often some truth in it. We have misrepresented the Lord in some way. I'd like to say something which may shock some people, but I think the church should be something which can laugh and something which can cry. It should be something which can feel, something which can understand. A church should be something which somehow or other can, uh, can feel, can sympathize, can love. As well as something which can come down with a rod of iron upon evil practices. The church was where it should be. Much of the vice of our country would be frightened. But vice isn't frightened of the church. Vice laughs at the church today. And those are seen as being fearful of the church. But when the church is where it should be, there is a spiritual power and a spiritual authority. It's not in the outward at all. It's inward. And even gangsters get afraid of the true church. You know that. Well, I hope that what I have to say it goes into you. Because, you see, back in church history, you have again and again this little principle being out where you take that remarkable woman, Mary Slessor. You see her. She goes out to Africa. She goes out where most white men wouldn't go because they died, usually, within a year or two. She just ploughed her way through bush into the most unbelievable parts. And you know the story. Single-handed by the grace of God, she converts tribes of cannibals to Christ. And if any of you have ever read the story of Mary Slessor, which belongs to her 120 or so or more years ago, if I'm right, 
um, you will you will be you will be all, you will laugh a lot as well as cry a lot. I'm afraid, of course, that the account of Mary Slessor's life, I think, is very poorly written. But there you are. However, some of you it may be temperamental in me. Perhaps you'll laugh and cry more when you get it. But if you understand Mary Slessor. You will find there are times when you just cannot help laughing when she gets all those tribes together. There are wars broken out between two cannibal tribes. They want to eat each other. That's what it's going to be. They want to eat each other. She knew it. So she gets them for a palaver, gets them all down in a row, uh, thing, and they spend the whole day. She sits at the end knitting. A little, frail, white-haired old lady, alone without a man near her except cannibals. And here they palaver all day. She knows jolly well that they don't want a peace because they want to eat each other. That was the truth. In the end, it came out. So when the sun was setting and she knew that uh, the thing, and they're all wagging their heads and saying, no, 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 it's, uh, it's over. So she just goes down and boxes all the views. Right the way down the line she goes. The result was the lasting peace was made between those two tribes which has lasted till today by one little old white-haired lady boxing the ears of a whole lot of I'd say that if you and I had gone out there, we would have been in their stomachs before now. <laughs> that woman was the meeting place between God and man and man and God. Because she had got this little principle into her heart, a woman who was frightened to go over the streets of Edinburgh because of the horse and carts that rumbled down it, went out into the bush and was able, by the grace of God, to wield an authority that was absolutely outside of her. That's just a principle that works. It's worked in church history again and again and again. Whenever you have God's people in a right relationship with himself, then suddenly things begin to happen. So do get it clear. There is a place to see the Lord laughing in us. There's a place to see the Lord crying in us. There's a place to see the Lord yearning in us. There's a place to see the Lord travailing in us. There's a place to see the Lord uh, in understanding, as well as in firmness, rebuke, correction, authority, righteousness. These things should come in terms of flesh and blood. They shouldn't just be little doctrines up there. They should be things that we express, we have, we give, we impart. There you are. That's the most important lesson in the book of uh, Jonah. The two ones that follow out of that are much smaller, but they come out of it. They're based on it. The second is that in this little book we've got the contradiction of uh, his own to what he wants, and we have his contention with them. You see, in this little book of Jonah, we find the contradiction to the Lord's conception. Here we've got a, a splendid man, a man who's faithful, who's devoted, and who knows his Bible. For when he was in the great fish's uh, inside, uh, he composed a psalm uh, in which he quoted 14 psalms at least, and possibly 19, a man who knew the scriptures, at least as far as he knew the Psalter, which was in being in his day. Jonah represents, as I've said, the outreach of God's own. They're, they're what they should be doing reaching the nations. He went to the greatest capital of his day, of the greatest empire of his day. And he went as an ambassador of God. Now when you see it in that term, you begin to see the misrepresentation that dear Jonah was. And how the Lord 
gently, or perhaps you don't think gently is finding yourself in a storm being swallowed by a great fish, but in a way it is gentle in the finish. Step by step, the Lord takes Jonah to experience after experience until finally we have a different Jonah. Of course, one of the loveliest things about the book of Jonah is we're not told that Jonah changes. But we couldn't have had the story if Jonah hadn't changed. It's because Jonah changed that he was able to put down into black and white at least some eyewitness account of these things, which later has been given to us in the form that we now have it. So we discover the reality. What is the reality? What is the reality of a contradiction to God's conception? Just this. The Lord is one thing, we are another. Do you understand? The church is not one thing and the Lord another. The church is Christ corporate as all. It is Christ in expression. Christ in his members. A word members just limbs. When you have a contradiction, God's people are there and the Lord is there. The Lord might bless them, the Lord might use them, the Lord might speak to them, but it's a very different relationship to the Lord being in them understand? When the Lord is in them, he expresses himself through them. But when there's something else, he just uses them and speaks to them and blesses them and so on, fights for them, keeps them, and so on. You see the difference? How easy it is to get into this contradiction. You must remember Jonah. When Jonah was such a misrepresentation of the Lord, the Lord never gave him up for one minute. Never. Not even when the storm came. He went down to the depths. He was never given up. The Lord was with him all the way. But I believe the end of the story was that the Lord was in Jonah in a new way. Jonah became an ambassador of the Lord in the end, in a way that he never thought possible and never really understood. So I think we've got to understand it. You see, when we have a contradiction, instead of expressing the Lord, we're expressing ourselves. Now, that just sums it up in a sense. Instead of expressing the Lord, we're expressing ourselves. We just express our own natural temperament and feeling and prejudices and biases and everything else. Just ourselves. Maybe a collection of us. It may be one of us. Jonah was temperamentally a narrow man. It's quite obvious. He wasn't sentimental. That's quite clear from the picture that was painted for us. He was a strong type of man, utterly frank, rather candid, said exactly what he felt with alarming frankness and not always very much grace. That was the kind of man that Jonah was. Not a person you can play about with, but as so often, with that kind of strong person, you get the other thing, and that is you've got a narrowness, you've got prejudice, you've got something which won't step out of, a tra of tradition, which hugs what lies behind it. See? So it's conditioned by all that's gone before. And so you find... So often when you've got the contradiction, everyone's taken up with themselves. Their problems, their transformation, their being changed, their going on, their perseverance, their blessing. They're all wrapped up with each other. The temple services can go on. The prophets of the Lord can speak. Everyone's bound up with, with what the Lord's doing inside his own inside his own. And the danger is that because of all the necessity of the Lord doing something inside his own, the eyes get turned permanently in 
and it is becomes a subconscious conception that it's wrong for the law to do anything outside. That it's wrong for the law to break out. So you've got this hidebound conception of God's people in Jonah's day. Oh, if they come to us, well and good, let the Queen of Sheba come, land them will come like that. That's marvellous, that's marvellous. But you don't think we're going out to them. No, no. No doubt that the Lord said to Jonah, Jonah, you go to Nineveh. He said, no, Lord, you bring Nineveh to us. You bring Nineveh to us, Lord. You bring them in. We'll be with you, Lord. And we see them all coming up, you know, to the temple and so on. Well, Lord, what a wonderful day that would be. You do it, Lord, you do it. And so Jonah might have said to the Lord, well, Lord, you're sovereign, almighty, do it. And the Lord might well have said to him, you've got the wrong end of the stick, Jonah. It's the trouble. You are my sovereignly appointed way and means of not only bringing the nations to me, but of bringing myself to the nations. Reaching them, touching them, getting out amongst them, somehow affecting them. That's the whole point of this book. In Jonah's view, the Lord and Israel were everything. Well, there's nothing wrong with that. The whole Bible says the Lord and God's own are everything. That is it. <laughs> but you see what happened. Somehow or other, something else turned. And the thing was that the outsider, well, no hope for them. Heedless, godless, unsaved people, no hope for them at all. Nothing for them whatsoever. The Lord's doing something in Israel. That's the point. The Lord's got to go on doing his work in Israel, see. And in the end, what happened? You got Jonah with this conception that the Lord was not even concerned for the outsider, really. He was only waiting, just waiting to judge them, that's all. He was just, as it were, waiting the strains, it were, because he wanted to judge them. So you can see that when Jonah goes off to Nineveh, finally the battle having been won, he goes off to, to Nineveh to proclaim this message of judgment. His feeling was, now then, Lord, you're just waiting to, to get down to this. Do you know what happens when the Lord doesn't do it and he defers it? It's a little doubt that's been in Jonah's heart from the beginning that perhaps the Lord might do this. The Lord was rather merciful, you know, rather gracious. Uh, I want just very simply then to underline that second lesson, leave it with you. You see, he was the unconscious product of a theological patterns and schemes. He was something that had, had, he was a product of his environment. He was a product of the prejudices of his day. It wasn't just his own fault. He just had imbibed the whole spirit of things. And there wasn't, you couldn't pin him down. There was nothing wrong with his thing about the Lord and Israel being everything. What he'd forgotten was that the Lord being everything in Israel was in order to bring the others to God. That was the point. He forgot that. So he got his eyes on the necessity of the work being done in Israel and forgot that that work is a means to an end. It's instrumental. Oh, if only you could understand this word instrumental. Because, you know, if it hadn't been for the fact that uh, there were two words we could have had used for our uh, scriptures, testamentum and instrumentum. If only we'd had instrumentum used, it would have, as, Bru as Professor Bruce, Bruce says, it would have saved us a lot of trouble. We would have had the old instrument and the new instrument. 
Then we would have understood. The whole thing would have become clear. What is the church? The instrument of God. The old instrument, the new instrument. Belong together. The instrument by which God wants to reach things. Get out to things. Instead we've got the word testament, which unfortunately has come to mean will. A will. Something left. You see, and everyone thinks of the Old Testament and the New Testament as something that someone long dead has left to us. You see, it's not that at all. That's why it's better in this revised version as covenant. Well, now you see, the result was simply this with Jonah. There was an icy hardness and harshness in him which he was not aware of. He was unconscious of it, but it was there. And that was the thing that the world touched and drew back. It, it sensed it all the time. It's only too apparent. And that was the basis of the Lord's contention with Jonah. The Lord had a contention with him. And wherever you get this contradiction, sooner or later we shall be involved in a contention with the Lord. Because there will come a time when the Lord will say, well, you are there and I'm here. I want you to be the body, my body. I want to get out. I want to put my heart into you. I want you to feel like me think like me have an attitude like mine well there we are I must leave that the last lesson is the root of this contradiction you'll find it in 1-3 in Jonah 1-3 third verse of the first chapter Jonah rose up to flee and then chapter uh, uh, chapter 4 and verse 2 prayed unto the Lord and said therefore I hasted to flee unto Tarshish fear was the basis of this contradiction now you may not agree with me over this but you know it is why are we frightened of, of really touching the unsaved why are we frightened of the unsaved really coming to us in any number because of fear fear of the cost fear of the work fear of the activity fear of perhaps of the lowering of a spiritual standard Fear of being submerged. Fear of having to die. Yes, die. Basically, if you go home and ask the Lord about this, you'll find your real fear of the whole question of evangelism, of reaching the unsaved, is a fear of dying. Because children mean death. As some of you, I believe, have discovered. They mean life. They mean death. They wear you out. As well as bring you great joy. And so it is with any spiritual family. If you've got a great host of children, you've got all the problems, as many problems as you have children. You've got all the worry, the care, the concern that poor Paul had when he spoke of the concern of all the churches, the daily burden he was bearing. Uh, this day. You see, it's a fear. Basically, it's a fear. A terrible fear. In, in, in Jonah's heart, it was a fear of losing his reputation as a prophet. He got a deep-seated fear that the Lord wouldn't do what he said he was going to do. And then he'd make Jonah look a fool in front of everyone's eyes. And of course it turned out exactly as he had this deep-seated idea, so it turned out. So you see, fear is a terrible thing, and it's the root of it all. It's the most insidious and intangible thing that you can touch. You know, fear, ask any psychologist. Fear is the most insidious and intangible thing. All kinds of things you do are the result of hidden fears. Some people, you know, uh, these explosive people, often it's deep-seated fear. Something that doesn't seem to be related to fear at all is in fact 
related to what some people call inhibitions or fears. Something that down, fear, fear of people, fear of cost, a fear of, okay, we'll leave it there. It's a fear. And you know, scripture says that fear is a thing that holds us in bondage. Whatever our fears may be, they fetter us. And this was so with God's people in Jonah's day. They were fettered by their own fears. They were so frightened. Frightened, I suppose, of losing their national entity. If somehow or other the Lord saved all the other nations, what would happen to them? And so on and so forth. That's one thing we learn. The second little thing on the root, only three of them, second one is unawareness of ourselves. Uh, if you look at four, chapter 4, verse 1, he was displeased, that was Jonah, exceedingly, and he was angry. He wasn't aware of it in many ways. You look at uh, chapter 2 and verse 10, the Lord, the Lord spake unto the fish, and it vomited out Jonah upon dry land. It's an amazing thing that when the Lord showed mercy to a whole city, Jonah sat down and was furious. And yet he had disobeyed the Lord and in the most remarkable way been delivered by the Lord. Now that's just what happens with us. Why can't the Lord express himself to us? Because we don't know ourselves. We just don't know what we are. And we could go through a whole lot of scriptures. If any of the, I won't quote them now, but if any of you want them, I will give them to you afterwards. You can look through them in your own study. Um, in this book you will discover Jonah did not know that he was what Jonah was like at all. He had another idea of Jonah altogether. He didn't really realise what he was like. And, you know, he genuinely believed that his viewpoint was the Lord's viewpoint. And you know that's one of the most common things in this, in this company, as well as amongst God's people. Everyone thinks their viewpoint, of course we don't call it a viewpoint, I'm calling it a viewpoint, their viewpoint is the Lord's mind. That's the hardest thing to break a person off. Jonah is the classic example of it. He, he, he never really thought that the Lord had anything. And you know, when the Lord did do something contrary to what he thought he should do, he really thought the Lord was wrong. So, there you get the picture of the Lord's servant stomping out in fury to sit out for 40 days and 40 nights while the Lord did this stupid sentimental thing over Nineveh. See? In other words, he could tell the Lord now what he should do. And he felt the Lord was being very unwise. Now, frankly, if you and I are honest, that's just where we are again and again. You see, we're all fools. And this is how we begin. Something comes up and we say, I don't think the Lord wants that. I'm quite sure the Lord doesn't want that. And then we discover the Lord, in the most singular and sovereign way, makes it quite clear it's his mind. Then what happens? You never hear those people say, do you? Well, I was wrong. No, they're not aware of themselves. That's something to be sidestepped. Either the Lord's forgotten himself for a moment, or something's gone wrong in heaven. But they're never wrong. And they never learn. That's Jonah. He learnt in the end. But you would have thought being swallowed by a fish, and all the rest of it would have cured him. But it didn't. It was only after this second great experience in him that he learnt to find what he was like. You and I, don't, we don't know ourselves. You see... And you, how long it took Jonah to accept what the Lord did? When the Lord contradicted him to his face, it took him 40 days and 40 nights or longer to accept it. At first he would not, that's the strength of our own being. 
would not accept it. And so he battled and battled and battled, and the Lord gave him a good, and then the Lord prepared a worm, and then the Lord prepared a sultry east wind, and even then, Jonah said, you can, you can finish me. I'm finished with you, you finish me. That's the end of all my ministry. If that's what you're like, you... The Lord said to him, is it, is it well for you? Do, do you do well to be angry for the good? I do very well, even to death. So that was that. But evidently, Jonah was changed. In the Otherwise, it would never have this book. See? Finally, Jonah came round. So that's what I want to say, you see, that it's a great thing when we recognize our own temperament. I may say so. I know you all pretty well. You know me. Very few people in this room know their temperament. Very few. Very few people in this room know the little gem that's contained in this. His thoughts are not our thoughts and his ways are not our ways. Most people work it out like this. His thoughts are not their thoughts and his ways are not their ways. That's what most of us think. But in fact he doesn't say that. Isaiah was able to say his thoughts are not our his ways. That's the, the, the beginning of, of wisdom, fear of the Lord. To see what we are like. To say, well, that's me, temperament, that's what I'm like. See? If I'm sentimental, then I'm rather sentimental. I've got to watch that. Think that my sentiment's the Lord. If I'm more given to narrowness, I'm narrow. And so all the other forms of temperament that you've got, See, they're all here. Uh, the, the great thing is just to recognize this. Jonah sees it. And when he sees it, it's all all right. The book's written. That's how it comes. And the Lord can never come through us until we see ourselves. We misrepresent him. All the time we're misrepresenting him. I wish we could see it. We just misrepresent him. Unconsciously. We wouldn't, we wouldn't want to misrepresent him. But we do it because we can't help it. We are presenting ourselves because we're not aware of ourselves. We present ourselves as the Lord. What a great thing it is when the Lord last got Jonah to see what he was like and the book of Jonah could be written. So those are those two roots. One is fear. The other is uh, um, an unawareness of ourselves. And the third is this, a refusal to confess. Uh, one of the most remarkable th things in this little book of Jonah is that initially he, he refused to even ask the Lord to do anything about his attitude. Now, if the Lord told you to go to Richmond and say that in 40 days it was going to be destroyed, and you went out and did it, you, you just lost your reputation, stood up and really said this, and then suddenly the Lord said, no, no, I won't do it, I won't do it. Look, look what's happened, look what's happened everywhere. And you just felt you were a fool in front of all, your, uh, in front of all their eyes. And, so on. and you came back, you see, and had a battle with the Lord, and all these things came out that are here. You know, surely when the Lord does something different to what you, you would say to the Lord, now, Lord, what's happened? What's wrong? Is there something wrong? Show it to me. But you see, that is a basis here. At first, he refused to. He wouldn't even speak about it. All he would say was, I, I do well to be angry. The Lord said to him, do you do well to be angry? Jonah should have said, I don't, Lord. You've been so gracious to me. I, I've been awful. But no, 
There's I do well. And in the end, the second time, he says, I do well even to death. In other words, if you want to get so angry with me, Lord, you destroy me, you do it. I can't help it. That's what he felt like. So you see, that's something very basic to this whole point. Finally, it must have been that Jonah admitted how utterly contrary he was to the Lord. And then the Lord must have changed him, and we've got the book as we have it. Now, do you understand what I mean? See, we, as God's people, should have a a ministry. We should be the body of Christ. We should be reaching the world. The world should be reaching God to us. We should be bringing God to them. We should be the means by which they can see and hear and handle God. But if not, some of you say, but I feel so indifferent, so cold, so hard about it. Yes, well, confess it. Confess it. Confess it privately. Confess it publicly. But confess it. Ask the Lord about it, and he will do something. But you see, so often what happens is no one will say anything. Because, you see, we are unaware of what we are like. In other words, the Lord has a contention with us. We are absolutely unaware of what we are like. The Lord has to leave us. Just stand back and say, well, let them get on with it. One day, perhaps they'll come to it. I wonder how long the Lord waited for Jonah to come to it so the book could be written. And I'll tell you this. That when Jonah finally said to the Lord, Lord, I've been Jonah all this time, and what I've been doing is just, I've just been expressing Jonah all this time, Lord, do something in me. I'm supposed to represent you. You now do something in me. You know, it was the beginning of Jonah's real ministry. From that point, Jonah began to minister to God's people in every age and generation from his time to this. The book was written. And whatever he said in Israel, it's been forgotten. And whatever he said in Nineveh, it's forgotten. But what has been written in this little book is there forever and ever. It's part of the word of the Lord which abideth forever and ever. In other words, when finally he was able to confess what he was like, the Lord gave him an eternal ministry. It began at that point. Otherwise I can see, like some of us, Jonas pumping out into the dark. And that would be the end. The book could never be written. Never. It would just be unwritten because it couldn't be written. But instead, Jonah got through. And the end was, we have the book of Jonah. Well, I hope that's been of help to you. It's covered some of the things we've said before. I believe it's very important for us all. Here we are, we're part of the church, part of God's body. And this is what the Lord wants. But all of us, we know we haven't got the love we should have. We haven't got the sympathy. We haven't got the understanding. All this talk about how should we reach the world. and There's no problem. No real problem. You get a bit of fire. You Let us all get a bit of fire in our hearts. A little bit of warmth, compassion, of love. It won't be a problem. People in our world will start to ask. People everywhere will start to touch us and feel the Lord. It won't be a problem at all. We shall go out visiting and people will be saved. We shall perhaps have an open air. People will be saved. Do what you will. People will be saved. It doesn't really matter. By all means, the Lord will save. Methods are not so important in the end. It's a question of the heart. But when everyone's all for how shall we do it? How shall we get to them? How, do you know it's indicative? And we're unaware of it, of something that somewhere or other cold.
And so the need is just say, Lord, we are cold. And ask the Lord to do something about it. And like Jonah, I think then you will discover that it will be the beginning of a new strain to us all when the Lord does that. So may the Lord help us very much. Thank you very much for listening.